Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Women and International Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and for today's episode, we will be addressing the COP26 Part 1. Beginning today, we are launching a mini-series of episodes to relate some of the developments that we can see in this specific conference, the United Nations Climate Change Summit, that is taking place currently in Glasgow, Scotland. It started in November 1st and will continue onwards until November 12th. As some of you are already following the news, some agreements have been made, some pledges have been taking place, and many others will continue in the following days. Our invitation is to look for more information from your own part. We will feature down below on the description box of this episode the official website of the COP26 with all the information on the goals of this conference, with news and press releases of all the developments that are taking place. We also invite you to look at your own country of origin or the country of residence that you're based in stance on climate change, what are the pledges that your own country are you know, pursuing for this conference, as well as any plans being considered in terms of climate change, environment, nature, or biodiversity protection. We also invite you to listen to some of the previous episodes that we have recorded so far on this subject. We have recorded an episode explaining what the IPCC 2021 uh, report said on climate change and we also have uh, done several interviews on gender and climate justice with women in different parts of the world, grassroots leaders as well as um, entrepreneurial ventures and more. We will feature all the links for you to have uh, clear access to those specific recordings. These are incredible conversations on different takes, not only on environmental justice, climate change, but also the gender perspectives. In this mini-series, we will touch upon gender perspectives on different ways. Uh, we invite you to follow our conversations taking place on Instagram as well as Twitter at womenhood underscore IR. We will be sharing questions, information and more regarding these perspectives. Here in this episode, as the first part, we want to share with you what the COP26 is about, what are the main goals, what are the main takeaways that we are receiving so far, and what should we be preparing for by the end of this conference. Okay, I think to start is good to uh, cover the basics and what it is the kind of world that we are living right now according to the worldview of the United Nations as well as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. So we are going to take that as a base in order to start uh, unveiling what the COP26 is about. For the benefit of those that do not know what the IPCC 2021 report said, um, it was causing a lot of alarm back in August because it was basically telling world leaders that we are reaching a crucial point where there is no going back. That probably by 2100, we will reach the landmark or the milestone of two degrees Celsius um, temperature rising. 
this could be definitely fatal for many um, species as well as for um, some landscapes that could be suffering not only uh, extreme weather but also the rising sea levels as well as glacier melting. Some of the uh, key findings of this report include that basically heat waves are hotter and will become more frequent that the 2010 and 2020 decade became the warmest on record and that the increase of CO2 emissions will continue posing a huge risk to biodiversity, that precipitation and heavy rains, monsoon seasons, as well as on the other end of the spectrum, drought will become uh, permanent states in some areas of the world. And basically what this report is saying is calling to action that already the 1.2 degrees Celsius mark is irreversible. While some world leaders with the Paris Accord uh, in 2015 were aiming to keep temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius by 2050, it is more likely than ever that if we don't change the course of action from governments, if there's no political or financial will to adapt and make all the changes necessary for that goal to be achieved, it's more likely that we will not reach it. And it goes beyond by saying that by 2030, that means eight years, almost eight years from now on, we will more likely experience 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature increase. And you could start wondering, like, Natalia, what is the difference? How would it change the way we relate to one another? How will that impact our livelihoods, our lifestyles, how we are living or where we are living? One of the key areas to start connecting the dots is the concept of heat. As we have seen in Europe, as we have seen in uh, Southeast Asia and many other places around the world, we are experiencing extreme weather. When we are talking about heat, there will be more severe heat waves. While the IPCC report of 2019 and this one of 2021 estimated that 14% of the Earth's population will experience severe heat waves at least once per season each year, that number will fatally increase by 37% if we reach the 2 degrees Celsius mark. That's a 0.5 difference that will double the number of people around the world. And we're not talking about dozens of people. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people that will suffer from heat waves or other associated phenomena 
like typhoons, hurricanes, that will become more and more strong because the ocean waters will be hotter than before. Monsoon seasons, droughts, widespread and more. The IPCC report, to finish this part, I invite you to once again um, listen to the full episode that we recorded on it. Um, the IPCC report was uh, seen with alarming eyes. And a lot of people, you know, were like, ah, this is uh, propaganda, this is too alarmist, these people are like, scientists are crazy, etc. It may sound very pessimistic. And the United Nations for this COP26 is specifically using this report to pressure nations or invite them, if you want to use a better word. <laughs> so it doesn't sound so violent, but we know that there are some dynamics of that taking place. But, you know, to pressure and invite nations to actually commit to make change, because this is not only about one nation, but it's about the survival in a way of Earth and of our future generations and from you know, species as well, plants, animals that may not be able to survive this type of weather. Okay, so taking that into consideration, we move to COP26. COP26 is receiving a lot of attention right now because as some of you already know, the last year was kind of a bit of a toss out for many of people because we were dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's still underway. It's not over the global pandemic, but this year with the vaccines rollout, with the type of commitment from nations and all the things are you know, taking place, the COP26 is now more fully engaged. This international conference already features more than 25,000 people, negotiators, diplomats, and researchers, scientists, like a lot of people from 200 countries. So this is not, you know, like a very small gathering in the park. Like this is a big event. That's why you will see that many international media are actually paying attention to it and everything that's being done. So what are the key goals of this conference? The COP26 has as a slogan of net zero 2050, make a plan for our future. In that regard, one of the key points of this conference is to um, achieve the consensus of the majority of governments, if not all, because that will be like incredibly optimistic, to reach a need zero mark by 250. And to make 1.5 degrees a possibility that can stand to that date. So as we saw in the IPCC report, just to remind, if it's likely that at this rate, if we are not, you know, making any plans to change anything, if it's 
more likely that at this rate we will reach 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. The commitment for COP26 is that if we will reach it, at least we can sustain that degrees mark, <laughs> I don't know the name, um, by 250. So we don't get to two degrees Celsius. That's one of the main goals. Another key element of this conversation is not only taking care about humans and the impact that climate change will have on ecosystems, degradation or biodiversity loss, but also on climate migration and refugees, as well as, you know, the rising sea levels, how will these impact um, the livelihoods or the survival or of some uh, state nations or islands or archipelagos or cities in the coastlines, you know, connected to this. Interestingly enough, on this second point, we saw a development. In uh, early October 2021, uh, a biodiversity COP15 uh, gathering took place in Kunming, China. And it will uh, continue onwards until next year. I mean, the conference uh, created a declaration, but it's still not finished and it will continue meeting where the United States, as well as 99 other countries, including China, um, sign a 30 by 30 target to protect 30% of their country's natural landscapes by 2030. Some experts, environmental activists, um, grassroots organizations that are, um, you know, seeing the COP26 develop, that are even in Glasgow, in Glasgow, in the streets protesting and, you know, like, um, making some demands and meeting with people and creating, you know, alternate or satellite events, do not believe that these agreements will be implemented. And if we look at the development of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, sorry to repeat the word, um, and the status of those SDGs that, you know, got very affected by the 2020 COVID-19 global pandemic and many other things that, you know, passed under the radar in several regions and countries, it's possible that this skepticism will continue growing. As we know, we are living in very polarizing times where states are making deals with one another through very realist lenses of national interests of, you know, we are pursuing similar goals, but, you know, at one point I can backstab you. In other words, the whole point of international solidarity or liberalist view of commonwealth of nations and you know we can always be together and move forward for the future that type of vision that led to that first league of nations and then the united nations that follow after the second world war that vision is not upholded nowadays so 
we need to keep in mind that the skepticism on the streets, on the grassroots level, will continue growing and that it will probably be matched by the distrust that some nations have from the developing or the developed nations world or political or economic project to national interests and more. So keep on the lookout on this specific second point. The third point or third goal that we can see um, is already taking um, soar since November 1st is the whole conversation on climate finance. So it's great to talk about goals and you know pushing all countries to work together to you know uh, cut emissions by mid zero to 2050, but not all developing nations and developed nations emit the same emissions, or are completely responsible for you know the heat waves and the stream weather. So beyond who's to blame or what kind of plans nations will have to change things, we need to look at the money, what is being funded. And this is going to be a key and crucial breaking point. Because in 2009, wealthier nations in North America, as well as in the European Union, promised to deliver a hundred billion US dollars a year to developing countries for four years, five years, starting in 2020. But that didn't start it in 2020, and it didn't start it this year either. So in this specific COP26, one of the first remarks from developing nations is like, hey, where's the money? You said that you were gonna give us a hundred billion a year and you're not doing so. Why? Wealthier nations or developed nations such as Canada and Germany are asking to push the date to start delivering that type of funding back to 2023, two years or at least one year and a half from now. However, African nations and African leaders are saying that no, <laughs> you know, we don't need a hundred and billion dollars a year. We need over one trillion dollars just only for Africa to adjust and make all the climate mitigation projects and, you know, infrastructure needed for this type of you know, goal. So keep in mind, if you are already following the news, where is the money conversation? Because right now we are seeing a fragmented on demands, a fragmentation of demands. If Africa needs over $1 trillion from wealthier nations, what will Latin America, South America, um, Southeast Asia or Asia or Middle East regions will need in order to adapt? And what are the main 
metrics that they are using. Are, are we using climate mitigation and climate adaptation uh, projects that are being um, you know, connected to the view of the Western world or the wealthier nations because they are the ones that are going to pay for it? Or are we actually, you know, like, could this lead, sorry, to make it so long? Could this lead to a new form of colonialism? I don't know. Since they're paying, and they will pay at some point to make all these adjustments to the developing nations, could it be possible that this dependency could lead to other colonial relations? At this point, I'm not an expert on climate finance, I'm not an expert on climate change, so I'm just throwing these questions there to invite you to reflect upon this. Another key element, and I think we have seen some progress on this part of the COP26, is to expand on the 2015 Paris Agreement and to make all the revisions necessary to make those commitments last. One of the key um, agreements of the 2015 um, Accord, Paris Accord, was to reduce carbon emissions, cut carbon emissions by 2030. On this regard, we saw today, uh, November 2nd, a deal that is being um, on the table, you know, considered on the table on methane. This is one of the many uh, contributors to global warming um, gas emissions. More than 80 nations are vowing to slash methane levels by 30% by 2030 compared to the 2020 levels. The United States as well as the European Union have announced this global partnership called the Global Methane Pledge. And it is important to note that methane, for all of you out there that are like, I only know about CO2, <laughs> I don't know about methane, what's that? And, you know, it's sometimes associated to cows, but it's much more than that. Methane is one of the uh, responsibles of current warming um, and, and gas house emissions, global warming uh, contributors. Methane is responsible for a third, one third of the main contributors of global warming is methane. And you could say, oh, it comes from cows and that's you know the biggest association, but not only comes from cows. 40%, 40% of methane comes from natural sources such as wetlands and also from the production, transportation and use of natural gas, as well as other associated activities of gas, such as fracking. <laughs> and we know that a lot of environmentalists are calling to stop fracking taking place in the US and in other parts of the world. Other contributors to methane production or emission are cows, yes, but also rice production as well as waste dumps. So the way that we are um, managing waste or having these dumps or landfills of waste also creates this type of mission. Of course, it's not the same as some of the other uh, elements, but 
just to know that it's not as simple as say, oh, cows are to blame for methane. <laughs> no. Um, according to the IPCC uh, 6SX men report of 2021, um, there are other contributors to global warming. We have CO2, which we know a lot, methane, volatile organic compounds, halo halogenated gases, black carbon, nitrous oxide, and aviation contrails on a slower um, degree. Okay, so that's one of the key elements and pledges that are already taking place today. And we also saw uh, some remarks by India who said that um, they are planning to become carbon neutral by 2070. That means 50 years from now. Australia is pledging to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Actually, you know, taking very seriously the net zero uh, pledge. Um, we also saw uh, a, deal, a deal taking place yesterday or a pledge because all of this is going to be agreed um, by the end of COP26. Many things can happen in the span of 12 12 days, I'm just gonna say 12 years, in the span of 12 days. Um, and that is the uh, forest um, conversation. And this is interesting because more than 100 world leaders out of the 200 countries, once again, keep that in mind, that are joining this COP26 have promised to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. In the COP26 uh, climate summit, that's uh, the first goal that was achieved. Brazil, who has been receiving a lot of criticism for its treatment of the Amazon, did sign this accord. And the pledge includes almost 19.2 billion US dollars of public and private funds to achieve this goal of ending deforestation and reversing deforestation by 2030 the government of the United Kingdom, as well as the um, crown <laughs> of the UK uh, is you know, behind this um, deal too, or supporting this type of deal. Some environmentalists and uh, scientists, I will feature down below in the description box all these articles for you to check out, um, but have said that they don't believe that this will be achieved because in 2014, I didn't know this, so I'm sharing this with you. I will list it down below once again on the description box for you to do your own readings about this. There was the New York Declaration on Forests that was a voluntary and non-legally binding uh, resolution that was agreed in 2014. 40 countries signed this agreement and one of the key points of the declaration was to halve deforestation by 2020 and halt it, stop it, end it by 2030. That didn't happen in any level. So that's why, you know, scientists and researchers as well as activists from Fridays for Future and, you know, protesters in the UK are saying like, hey, like, if you didn't implement that one in 2014, what, what is the guarantee that you will do it now? Which, you know, 
Greta Thunberg, who is this um, environmental activist and one of the leaders of Fridays for Future, you know, it's been very blunt and, you know, being recorded on media saying that these COP26 and all these deals are already a blah, blah, blah. And we're only two days in. So, yeah, I'm just sharing what is taking place. Um, okay, so lastly, one of the um, big concerns is the, ter the type of world polluters. And that's still underway. The role of China, which is currently the world's polluter, and its presence was not as expected. President Xi Jinping have not decided, have decided to not go to the conference, and they, um, the COP26 organizers, refused to have him on a video link, and asked him to send a written statement, and in the written statement, he did not say that China will pledge to anything. So if China, you know, being the world's biggest polluter and having investments in coal stations in different parts of the world is not even sharing like how they pledge to change or achieve the net zero mark, then we may not be on a good route. Action Network and World Beyond War, as well as many other organizations in the peace building and peace um, activism um, industry, have said that another challenge of this COP26 is not addressing military pollution. And we have done an interview on this, I will feature it down below in the description box, that um, explains that military industry or the military industry complex from states as well as from private contractors, companies and more are responsible for two, are the second largest responsible of greenhouse emissions. And what they are launching right now is a campaign and a petition to COP26 address military greenhouse emissions because it's, it's not present. And just to keep in mind, by 1997, this is according, once again, to this specific campaign. I will feature it down below in the description box for you to check all the links that they have featured. Um, in this campaign, they are saying that the 1997 Kyoto Treaty um, military greenhouse gas emissions were exempted from climate negotiations that at the 2015 Paris Agreement, military greenhouse gas emissions were left to the discretion of individual nations. Once again, like do whatever you please. <laughs> and then the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change um, that was obliging um, signatories to publish annual greenhouse emissions were actually leaving military emissions reporting as voluntary and many of them did not even write anything. So if we don't bring to light that our states or our nations are also producing greenhouse emissions through militaristic ventures and you know, in the case of the United States, China, UK, and France, and, you know, developing nations, once again, um, as well as many others, you know, are um, not even 
um, considering this as a topic of discussion as these, at these high-level meetings, then, you know, are, are, we, are we connecting the dots? Okay, so I want to leave it here, this episode, because it's going to be a mini-series, so we are going to continue um, learning more about the developments of this conference. What I invite you from the get-go to start connecting and start reflecting upon is first understanding what is climate change. I will leave below recommended links. Second, what's your own country of origin or your country of residence, you know, take or stance or pledge on how they will, you know, change or, you know, make all the adjustments necessary for, you know, the net zero goals or these international um, commitments. What's their role? What's their point of view, etc. Also, invite you to look at the unequal power relations between states from developed nations and developing nations. We will continue this work on Instagram and Twitter at womenhood underscore IR. But specifically, if you're following these episodes, I do invite you to do your own research and analysis because feminist theory talks about unequal power relations based you know, with this perception of gender, but also on the perception of masculinized power. And since we are working a lot with feminist theory in this podcast, that's why the invitation is there. Also, I invite you to look at the different demands from feminist organizations, grassroots, environmental, peace organizations. Um, We will cover some of them in a following episodes. But in this one specifically, I want to share with you some of the demands of the women and gender constituency group from the um, UNFCC. This is one of the nine stakeholder groups of the UNFCC. Once again, the United Nations um, framework on climate change. And this is comprised, this group of women and gender constituencies comprised of 33 women's and environmental civil society organizations for sustainable and just future. And they have made 11 demands specifically for this COP26. I will read them now. Opening quote. We call on COP26 to fulfill commitment to human rights in the Paris Agreement and keep 1.5 alive, deliver on finance and prioritize loss and damage, ensure human rights and ecosystem integrity in Article 6, advance the gender action plan, reject false solutions and invest in gender just climate action, facilitate gender just transitions to a regenerative economy, invest in resilient gender transformative climate justice education, promote health, including sexual and reproductive health and rights, ensure rights to water and sanitation in all climate action, protect the ocean, cryosphere, coastal ecosystems, and local communities, and ensure collective women's lands rights. Closing quote. I will feature down below all the links for you to check it out. Look at the different demands and start connecting and start analyzing from there where is the gender perspective what type of um, conversation 
is connected to gender if only you know they only talking about women but they're not talking about men they're not talking about you know inclusive societies but only about women suffering the effects of climate change or women being the 70% of climate refugees like where are the women where are the men where are the invisible or silent men or people from different gender identities Where are the LGBTQ community here? If you want to go the gender perspective route, but if you want to uh, go the deconstructive route of this patriarchal mindset, start also looking at the different hierarchies about how these states are talking about climate change. Are they talking it from the survival of state nations? Are they talking from the survival of their territories or their populations? Are they even talking about birds, cows, dogs, uh, fishes, you know, oceans, whales? Are they, like, who's talking about what? What's their view? Is it coming from a state-centric view, from a homocentric view, andro, gyno, or earth-centric view? Like, wh where is it going? <laughs> These are just questions that I'm throwing you out there to, you know, start you know, engaging in a more holistic view of these type of conferences. So I hope it helps. And once again, I invite you to follow us on social media. I invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, to learn more, to become a patron and support our community and our growth. And if you want to learn more tomorrow, November 3rd, we have a free webinar, free RSVP on gender and international relations one-on-one. We are going to explore the three key issues uh, to understand a man's world and start exploring through different feminist lenses. So we invite you to join us on this specific occasion and be on the lookout for upcoming events. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.